0: Welcome to SongCraft. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. SongCraft is the show that brings you in-depth conversations with the creators of great songs, from the ones you know and love to the ones you should know. Be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit us at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to I've Enjoyed As Much of This As I Can
1: Stand, a top 10 hit for Porter Wagner in 1963 that was written by today's guest on SongCraft, Bill Anderson. In 1995, Billboard magazine listed the top 20 country songs of the previous 35 years. Bill Anderson wrote four of those 20 songs and has continued writing them ever since, becoming the only country songwriter to land a top 40 hit in seven consecutive decades. After signing with the Decca label in 1959, Anderson released 37 records as an artist that reached the top 10 on Billboard's country singles chart, eight of which climbed to the number one position. Though wildly successful as a performer, Bill was a prolific songwriter who penned most of his own hits, including the classics "Po' Folks," Mama Sang a Song, 8x10, and Still, which was named Billboard magazine's Song of the Year in 1963. His initial songwriting success began in 1958 when Ray Price took City Lights to the top of the charts for 13 weeks. The song became a standard that charted repeatedly in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Similarly, his Tips of My Fingers reached the top ten four different times with versions recorded by Roy Clark, Eddie Arnold, Steve Warner, and Anderson himself. Bill teamed with Roger Miller to co-write When Two Worlds Collide, which was a hit for Miller in 1961, Jim Reeves in 1969, and Jerry Lee Lewis in 1980. Other major hits from Bill Anderson's vast catalog include Lefty Frizzell's Saginaw, Michigan, Connie Smith's Once a Day, and Porter Wagner's Cold Hard Facts of Life. After a hiatus, Anderson returned to songwriting in the 1990s, co-writing hits including Vince Gill's Which Bridge to Cross, Which Bridge to Burn, Brad Paisley and Alison Krause's CMA Song of the Year Whiskey Lullaby, and George Strait's CMA and ACM Song of the Year Give It Away. Bill was elected to the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1975 and inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame in 2001. He has received multiple Grammy nominations and more than 50 BMI Performance Awards. Anderson was named BMI Country Songwriter of the Year six times and was the first country writer ever honored with the prestigious BMI Icon Award in 2002. The Academy of Country Music similarly recognized him with their inaugural Poets Award in 2008. His autobiography, Whisperin' Bill Anderson, An Unprecedented Life in Country Music, will be released by the University of Georgia Press in
0: September, and is now available for pre-order at billanderson.com. Well, before we get into talking to Bill, um, we've actually had a couple of pretty monumental things happen uh, in the world of music, and I'm talking about the passing of two icons, Merle Haggard and Prince. Yeah, same month. Yeah, and probably uh, one of the few times that people say those two names in the same sentence (laughs) merle haggard and prince but uh two guys absolute legends um and both of us have had the the chance to see them live which is pretty awesome
1: yeah yeah you know uh prince about five years ago came and did 21 nights at the fabulous forum right here in inglewood california headquarters of songcraft and uh man i have to say and i think paul that you will will probably agree with me here Um, Prince was without a doubt the, the greatest live act I've ever seen.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I have this sort of standard when, when a show really blows my mind, I have this kind of like mixed feeling. One is that I want to go home and practice my instrument and get better. Mm. And the other is that I want to burn all my instruments (laughs) and never try to play them again. And uh, that was the conundrum I found myself in after seeing Prince. And I I leaned closer to burning everything. (laughs) I just couldn't imagine a guy could play like that.
1: You know what is amazing to me? I went to three or four of those shows from that 21-night run, and... Um, everyone was completely different, Hmm. um, completely different set lists, different arrangements, completely different. But the band was so tight. It was like going and watching like a Vegas review where the band plays the same show twice a day. Like they could almost do it in their sleep because it's that tight. That's how tight his band was for each individual show. I mean, he surrounded himself with the greatest musicians.
0: Incredible. Yeah. And then on the other side of the spectrum, I got to see Merle, and I got to see Merle with you, and that was when you invited me up to an event up in Bakersfield, and you, and you kind of lured me to go saying, it's possible Merle Haggard might be in attendance. Right. Which I thought would be super cool just to see him. I had no idea he was going to get up and play a whole set.
1: Yeah, that was at the uh, the Buck Owens Crystal Palace up yeah. there in Bakersfield and uh, for the 80th birthday for Billy Mize, who was another Bakersfield country artist. But uh, yeah, Merle played a full set. It was a very cool show. And, and um, Merle Haggard, I have to say, for me personally... As probably my favorite American songwriter. Um, and I really was um, bummed by the loss of both Prince and Merle because they have contributed so much, um, not only as cultural icons in their respective genres, but also
0: as songwriters. Yeah. Well, and it just makes you really want to appreciate the guys that we still have that are still making music and around telling their stories. And Bill Anderson is one of them.
1: Yeah, I mean, amazing. The number of decades that Bill Anderson has (laughs) been at it. I mean, you know, I I recently realized that Bill Anderson is not in the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Uh, He is in the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame, but he's not in the the Songwriters Hall of Fame in New York, which blows my mind. Can we start that petition now? That guy absolutely... Uh, I, I would say is unparalleled in the world of country music in terms of the success that he's had in, in different eras and through the different changes that country music yeah. has has gone through. He has stayed relevant. You know, there's a lot of people that are legends, uh, but it's rare that you find a guy who is both a legend and still Relevant, working, yeah. writing hit songs today. I mean, there there's not really a template for that. Bill no, Anderson is very unique in that regard.
0: Yeah, incredibly adaptable and just and and yet that style still comes through even as uh, kind of the format of the music changed. It still sounded like a Bill Anderson song. Yeah, and the lyric was just so tight, the imagery, um, and it really fun hearing his stories. I mean, this guy this guy knows how to uh, how to uh, entertain a room.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolute professional, uh, great stage. Presence type of guy, which uh, comes through too in his conversations, very warm and, and friendly, and uh, and some of the darkest country songs, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> some of the most twisted. Uh, this dark kind of material that you can imagine somehow came from the pen of this man who is like the, the the warmest, smilingest, friendliest right. dude ever. Which I I love that. I just love the contradiction of you know you have a guy who is simultaneously the most polished, smooth kind of entertainment type of guy, and clearly has got some like some stuff he's going on under issues. the surface. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he is. a He's like a real artist's artist and a writer's writer.
0: Yeah, for everybody listening, go check out. Whiskey Lullaby uh, after this interview and uh, prepare to be gutted. Yeah, not not song. to
1: mention uh, Porter Wagner's Cold Hard
0: Facts of Life. Yeah.
1: You don't hear a lot of songs these days about a, a man who who comes in and, and murders his wife and her lover with a knife. You know right. that's that's not uh, country radio affair nowadays. <laughs> but uh, well, hopefully
0: it'll come back around.
1: Yeah, you know everything is cyclical, right? Yeah. That that's what Bill even told us. So
0: well, uh, <laughs> let's get into it. Let's hear from him. All right. Bill, welcome to SongCraft.
2: Hey, thank you, Scott. Great to be with you and Paul. Look forward to this visit for a long
0: time. Uh, We are, too. Uh, So, Bill, you grew up in South Carolina and Georgia. What were your earliest musical influences as a kid?
2: Well, I lived the first eight years of my life in Columbia, South Carolina, and then we moved to a little town called Decatur, which is right outside of Atlanta, Georgia, back in those days before television when local radio was popular there were a lot of local entertainers around both in columbia and atlanta that influenced me a lot there was a man named byron parker in columbia south carolina that had mm. a band called byron parker and his hillbillies mm, yeah. and they played hillbilly music it wasn't bluegrass because that hadn't really come along yet but it was the old appalachian mountain music that i really kind of cut my teeth on with a right. lot of gospel music thrown in and. Uh, I I was a big fan of Byron Parker's and and listened to him. And then when I got to Atlanta later on, there were many local influences there. There was a a barn dance show in Atlanta, kind of like the Grand Ole Opry, called the WSB Barn Dance. And I was a big fan of that and the artists that came through there. But I discovered the Grand Ole Opry itself in probably my... Oh, golly, I'd say probably when I was around 9 or 10 years old, and I began to know how to pull in WSM from Nashville. Hmm. And my first big influence, the major, major influence in my life, was a man named Hank Williams.
0: Right. Sure. sure, yeah. Well, uh, what do you remember about the first song that you ever wrote once you would kind of processed all those influences and got them in your head and you started writing yourself?
2: First song I ever made up, I was about 9 or 10 years old, I guess. I had never been west of the state of Georgia. I've never been even across into Alabama. So naturally, the first song that I wrote was called Carry Me Back to My Old Texas Home. (laughs) That just sounded to me like something a country songwriter ought to be writing about. He ought to be writing about Texas. Well, I wouldn't want anybody to see or hear that song today, but that's, that's the first one I ever wrote. The first one anybody really ever heard was a song that I wrote when I was about a sophomore, I guess, in high school, and entered a high school talent show. I had written a... Little song called What Good Would It Do to Pretend? And it was a little better than. Uh carry me back to my old texas home but <laughs> yeah. it wasn't quite as good as one that came a few years later called city lights
1: right right, right. sure sure gotta to, gotta to build up to those
2: well you know i tell people that i think sometimes people think you know you you sit down the very first time you ever write and, and you write a standard or you write a hit you write a classic and that's not true right. it's just like anything else you know a baseball player comes up through the minor leagues before he gets to the major leagues and yeah. and you have to learn you have to hone your craft and Mm. While I didn't necessarily realize that's what I was doing at the time, that was what I was doing, and I think that's what every songwriter has to do.
0: That's a great analogy. Yeah.
1: Well, Bill, I understand that you were the editor of the school paper and the yearbook in high school and that while you were still a teenager, um, you did some freelance uh, writing as a sports editor and even wrote some pieces for the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Um, And of course, then went on to study journalism in college. In what ways did your journalistic experiences and training shape you as a songwriter?
2: Well, I didn't realize at the time that it was affecting it at all, but looking back on it, I realized that it really did. I think probably the biggest thing would be, obviously, in the lyric writing, and it would be the fact that uh, in journalism they teach you every time you write a story, you go out and, and cover a story that happens somewhere. You've got to put in the who, what, when, where, mm-hmm. why, and how yeah. of the story. Yeah. And when you write a song, it's really a lot like that too. You've got to tell the whole story. You've got to make it make sense from the very first line uh, to the very last line. The difference is, the biggest difference is the limitation when you write a song. You've got to fit that song inside a, a three-minute or four-minute little mm-hmm. box. Whereas right. if you're just writing a an article for a newspaper or a magazine or writing a book, you know, you don't have those parameters and and you're kind of closed in with writing a song. You have to write it in meter, you have to write it in line, and you have to write it within the the time constraints that you have so you learn a little bit but you can't go to journalism school and learn how to be a songwriter
1: (laughs) (laughs) right right sure well in addition to your journalism pursuits you were also a dj in athens georgia for a while before moving over to station wjjc in commerce georgia while you were still a college student what did you learn about songwriting as a result of listening to and studying so many songs that would just naturally come to your attention uh, at your radio job
2: That's really a great question, a great observation, because sitting there in that little radio station, I'm talking now when I got to Commerce, when I was in Athens, the first radio job I had, they wouldn't let me play country music any time except on Saturday nights, and they weren't too thrilled about me doing it then. (laughs) So I, I really didn't get the exposure to it that I got once I moved to Commerce. I was the music director of the station. That meant I would open all of the envelopes that came in with the records inside mm. and the little 45 RPM vinyl records back in those days. Yeah. And the first thing I would look at after I saw who the artist was and the label and all this, I would look to see who the songwriters were. Mm. That was what I was interested in. I mm. gravitated toward that. And listening, as you said, exposed to that That type of music, that parade of music, every day. I mean, there was not a day that went by that, you know, at least a half a dozen or more packages of records came into the station. And I got to listen to all of them. And I got to try them out. And I'd say, well, I like this enough to play it on the show, and I'll see what the people like. And in those days, we took a lot of phone requests. People still actually wrote letters to disc jockeys, telling you what kind of songs they liked and what they didn 't like yeah. and It just became a process of of listening to the songs and kind of figuring out what I liked and then matching that to what the public liked yeah. but having that daily exposure to that music, that fountain that was just flowing into my lap every day was a a fabulous influence. And I had one other influence that I want to mention. There used to be a magazine, a monthly magazine called Country Song Roundup. Yeah, sure. And Country Song Roundup featured stories and pictures and articles about the stars, and it featured the song lyrics of the top hit songs of the day, and I would study the songwriters, I would study those lyrics, I would read them, I would learn the songs and sing them, and they always had the songwriters' names on there and the publishers' names, and I just gravitated toward that. So between Country Song Roundup and the radio station, uh, I was exposed to uh, a a lot of country songs, country songwriters, and, and that had a profound influence on me.
0: Wow. And and during that time, of course, as if being a, a journalism student and a DJ weren't enough, you also made your first independent record for the TNT label out of San Antonio while you were still in college. Tell us how that came about.
2: Well, in the radio, we would get these various pamphlets. You got all kinds of mail and stuff people were writing. And one of the things that I got in the mail one day at the radio station in commerce was a little book that had a list of every. Music publisher and every record company in the United States, mm, wow. and boy, that was just like <laughs> <laughs> that was like uh, dangling candy in front of a baby for me to look in that book. I started writing letters. Wow. So, of course, there was no such thing as email and social media back then. So I just sitting down at a typewriter or sitting down with a pen on a piece of paper, and I would write a half a dozen or so letters every day. And the company that responded to me was a little company in San Antonio called TNT Music. The T stood for Tanner. There was a man named Bob Tanner, and uh, it was Tanner in Texas That's what TNT stood for. And I sent him some songs that I had written, and he recorded one of them with another artist on his label, and then he allowed me to record two of them and put them out on TNT Records. This was about 1957. And uh, I was probably, what, in 57, I would have been 19, 20 years old by the mm-hmm. end of the year. Yeah. And that was the first uh, first kind of thing that I ever did along that line. And it it was never heard, my record was never heard, or that song was never heard, outside the city limits of Commerce, Georgia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't exactly what you would call a rousing success, <laughs> but the one that came next, uh, kind of changed all that.
1: Yeah, I was going to say so you, you wound up having uh, the opportunity to make a second record for TNT and and that one of course featured City Lights and um, City Lights was the first song that you ever wrote that appeared on the Billboard charts, uh, which it went to number one in 1958 when Ray Price recorded it. A bright array of city lights
0: As far as I can see The great A lonely guys like me, the cabarets and honky they their flashing signs invite, a broken heart to lose itself
3: in the glow of city light.
1: That record stayed at number one for 13 weeks, which is pretty impressive for a first hit. Uh, tell us what originally inspired that song and how you know Ray wound up getting a hold of it in the first place.
2: Well when the first song you have that's recorded and released nationwide by a big star goes to number one and stays there 13 weeks you're tempted to think, boy, this is easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. There's <laughs> nothing to <did>. it. <laughs> I didn't know how long it would be before that would ever happen oh, again. Wow. <laughs> right. I wrote City Lights up on top of a little hotel in Commerce, Georgia, where I lived. It was the tallest building in town. It was three stories high. And I used to take my guitar a lot of times at night and go up on the roof of that little hotel. And I'd go up there at night and take my guitar and just sit up there and... Uh, flop my long legs across a couple of old lawn chairs they had up there and just <laughs> sing to nobody. There was nobody up there to hear me. I'd just kind of go up there and play and sing to the night. And right. there was a, a very magical night in August of 1957 when I was up there and happened to look up at a sky full of beautiful stars. And mm. down at what few lights there were in Commerce, Georgia, and wrote the line, the bright array of city lights, as far as I can see. After my dad heard that, he said, son, I should have known you had the imagination to be a songwriter. (laughs) You could look at Commerce, Georgia and write about a great white (laughs) land. (laughs) (laughs) But that's where it all got started, and uh, Mr. Tanner out in Texas allowed me to make another TNT record, and he put city lights on one side of it, and It got to Nashville, and Ray Price heard it one day while he and Ernest Tubb were in the car riding to the golf course. And Ernest Tubb told Ray that he ought to record the song, and uh, Ray argued with him a little bit at first, but he finally came around and (laughs) called a special session and cut it and changed my life and uh, a lot of other people's lives for years to come.
0: Well, was it your success with that song that earned you uh, your first music publishing deal, or were you already working with a Nashville publisher prior to that time?
2: No, I was not working with a Nashville publisher at all. I had become acquainted with a few of them through a friend of mine. I had met a guy uh, stationed in Atlanta, near Atlanta, in the Army, back in the, uh, the days when I was working in commerce, and he came to Nashville after he got discharged from the Army, and he signed a publishing deal, and he told me that he would introduce me to some of the other publishers and, and people around, and he did. And he went on to have a pretty good career, too. His name was Roger Miller.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not, not bad.
2: <laughs> and Roger affiliated with Tree Publishing Company here, a wonderful man named Buddy Killen. And when I did come to Nashville and finally did get a publishing deal in Nashville, it was with Buddy Killen and Tree Publishing Company.
1: Yeah, who you're still with. Of course, they're Sony ATV Tree today, but you're still with them now, right?
2: Well, this is about my third or fourth incarnation there. Uh, Yes, I am there, but I left a couple of times and went back and left and went back. and Finally, I decided, you know, the grass isn't greener anywhere else. I'm just going to dance with the one that brung me, and uh, and I went back and been very happy there for many years.
1: Well, I understand that even though you uh, you know, you had this this huge success as a writer with with City Lights, and you wound up getting a recording contract uh, with Decca Records not long after that. But even with with having a, a record deal and having this huge hit, you did not go to Nashville until you finished your college education. Uh, in nineteen fifty nine. Why would you delay uh, it's sort of happening for you, you know, it's all coming together. So so why delay moving to Nashville to pursue that career till till after finishing school?
2: Because my daddy would have beaten my butt from one end of Georgia <laughs> to the other
3: <laughs> That's great.
2: <laughs> the only thing my mom and dad bless their hearts and rest their souls, they ever asked me to do was please finish college. Yeah. Please go get that education, because if if this sports writing thing or this baseball playing thing or this country music thing doesn't work out, you really need to have that education to fall back on and yeah. so i was very fortunate in that i worked in an environment in commerce where i could take some time off and and could come to nashville to visit and and i made my first two-deck of records while i was still living in commerce and wow. still going to school yeah. and i was so close to finishing that that i thought you know it really would be a shame and and uh, and i didn't want to break my mom and dad's heart by by leaving so yeah. i did finish but i'll tell you what i graduated about nine o'clock in the morning, had lunch with mom and dad about 11, and at 2 o'clock I was in my 1958 Ford driving to Nashville.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right.
2: And I never looked back. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, in, in 1959 you had your first charting record as an artist with That's What It's Like to Be Lonesome, which went to number 12, and Ray Price covered that one too and took the song to number seven. Were you starting to wonder at that point if maybe you were going to become the song supplier for Ray Price? <laughs>
2: well, there, there would have been a lot worse gigs to have. I <laughs> exactly. tell you that Yeah, uh, Owen Bradley told me, uh, Owen was my producer when I went with Decca Records, and yeah. he told me after the, the Ray Price had covered the second, he said, we've got to quit making demos for Ray Price. We've got to start, <laughs> start making Bill Anderson records. And, uh, that, and, that, we, that
0: demo went to number 12 on its own, though.
2: Well, I've wondered, you know, if Ray hadn't covered it, my record was going up the charts pretty good, but then when Ray came out with it, and of course it was his follow-up to Sunny Elias, and of course he was going to eat my lunch, his (laughs) record was going to go a lot higher in the charts than mine did. Right, right.
1: Well, of course, other artists uh, did begin recording your songs, including a, a couple of fair and young top tens in 1960. And then the, the Jim Reeves recording of I missed me that went to number three that same year. Um, it, it seems that most of the songs that you were writing back then were written alone. Um, and that's not too common today, but was, was definitely more typical in those days. Why do you think the approach to country songwriting in general has shifted more from kind of that writing solo to collaborating?
2: I think there's probably several reasons. Um, some of them are kind of uh, behind the scenes legal type things. When I came to Nashville in the early days, unless you wrote for the same publishing company as your co writer, and unless you were licensed by the same performing rights organization, BMI, ASCAP, CSAC, whatever, yeah. you could not write with another writer. For example, Harlan Howard and I were dear friends and would love to have written songs together, but he wrote for a company called Pamper Music. Yeah. I wrote for Tree Music. And in those days they would not allow you to split the copyrights. Wow. But you could not you could not write with anybody that didn't write for your company. Hmm. And so that really limited you and so a lot of people wrote solo because they really didn't have a whole lot of choice about it
3: yeah and yeah. then
2: you know the other reason i think as, as time has gone on and and i have become very comfortable with co-writing which is something i wasn't too sure i could ever get used to but i i think the old uh, you know two heads are better than one uh yeah. maybe one guy that you co-write with is maybe he's strong musically maybe you're stronger lyrically or vice versa and you each bring something to the table and at the end of the day maybe you've come up with something in a collaborative form that you wouldn't have come up with by yourself.
1: Yeah, yeah. sure, yeah. Well, one of the, the few songs that you, you did collaborate on in, the, in that era was When Two Worlds Collide, which you and Roger Miller wrote together and which turned out to be a, a top ten hit for Roger in
0: 1961. Your world was made up of things sweet and good My Hearts lie in shambles, and oh, how they've cried. That's what happens
1: when two worlds collide. Proved to be an enduring song with uh, additional hit versions by Jim Reeves in 1969 and Jerry Lee Lewis in 1980. Um, talk a little bit about your co-writer Roger Miller. You mentioned him a moment ago, but what was unique about him as a songwriter?
2: Well, Roger was extremely creative. My goodness, people talk today about you know how witty he was, how clever he was, how brilliant he was in his career. But when I met Roger and he was in the Army, as I said, stationed in Atlanta and was, I don't know, what, 18 or 19 years old, Roger was just as crazy and as brilliant and as creative then. The world just hadn't discovered him yet. I mean, it wasn't an act. It wasn't like he just all of a sudden turned on and became this thing called Roger Miller. He was always Roger Miller, and he always made me laugh, and he always amazed me with his creativity yeah and he wanted to write a song there was a big science fiction movie back in those days called when worlds collide right it was kind of the star wars of its day sure and roger wanted to write a song called when worlds collide and i kept telling him roger you can't write that that's the name of a movie back in those (laughs) days you didn't take titles and things Mm. from other things like they do today
3: yeah
2: and He said, well, why can't I? I said, well, you you wouldn't write a song called Gone with the Wind. You (laughs) (laughs) You can't write When Worlds Collide. And this night we were getting ready to leave town and travel down to Texas for a show. He came to me and he said, what if we call it When Two Worlds Collide? I said, you got it, Roger, we can do that. So we got in his uh, little Rambler station wagon, and a boy named Johnny C got in the front seat and did the driving, and Roger and I sat in the back and had a guitar and a piece of paper, and we wrote When Two Worlds Collide, somewhere between Nashville and San Antonio.
1: Wow, (laughs) wow, wow. Well, the hits kept on coming uh, for you in the early 1960s with with charting records by Hank Lachlan, George Hamilton IV, uh, Jim Reeves yet again, and several others. Uh, But it wasn't until 1962 that you had another number one record, and this time you were also the artist. And, of course, I'm talking about Mama Sang a Song.
0: By then, Dad's hair was turning white, and
1: I had to be my mama's little man. But it seemed that his daddy's back
2: grew weak my mother's faith just grew strong. And those were the greatest days of all when mama sang a song.
3: Rock of ages.
1: Now, not only was that a hit for you, but Stan Kenton and Walter Brennan each had top 40 pop versions with that. Uh, and I've heard you say that that's one of your favorites. So among your many hits, what makes that one particularly special for you?
2: Well, I tell people all the time that you really can't have a special favorite song. People ask me, probably my most asked question is, what's your favorite song you ever wrote? Yeah. And I say, Who, you know, which one of your kids do you love the best? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> which one of your grandkids is your favorite? Mm-hmm. You know, you can't say that. But there are songs that are closer to you personally as a writer. And Mama Sang a Song is one of those that's closer to me because I wrote it about my mom, about my dad, about my family, about my upbringing. Yeah. And I kind of incorporated my grandparents and a lot of other people into that song. And therefore, I think when a song is that close to you personally, it has to rank as uh, as one of your, I guess, favorite. I guess that's the only word you mm. can use. It. Sure. it It becomes one of your favorite songs just by its very nature.
0: Yeah. Well, by that time you were a member of the Grand Ole Opry, and nobody joins the Opry for the paycheck, of course, but I understand there was kind of a unique support network that was formed amongst the cast in that era. Talk a bit about what that community was like for you.
2: Well, I was the new kid on the block, of course, in 1961 when I joined the Opry, and there was already that closeness there with Mr. Acuff and Minnie Pearl and Hank Snow and little Jimmy Dickens. and the ones that had been there you know for yeah. for all of those years uh, I kind of felt like the intruder at the party for a while I'm <laughs> thinking like you know do I, I don't really belong here I'm not on the same level with these people but they were very kind and open and welcoming to me we toured together we traveled together we we became acquainted and if you can imagine becoming acquainted and and becoming a a a contemporary, a a peer with somebody that has been your hero for so many years. I mean, it was really hard for me in the beginning to relax around the George Morgans and the Carl Smiths and the the people like that that I had admired and looked up to, the Farron Youngs and all Mm -hmm. of these people. It was kind of a process. It wasn't like you walk in there one day and you're one of the guys. You know, you (laughs) kind of feel like you had to earn your way in and and be accepted and, and be respected by those people, and it doesn't come overnight.
0: Yeah. Now, how did you get the nickname Whispering Bill?
2: (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Actually, there was a little comedian on my television show. I was doing a syndicated television show in the late 60s, and I had a little comedian on my show named Don Bowman, who was a funny little cat and a a, (laughs) dear friend, and yeah. and he used to tease me a lot about doing the songs where I'd sing a little bit and talk a little bit, like Mama sang a song, and later on songs like Still and Golden Guitar, and you know, when you're doing a song like that, you don't want to come off like you're selling used cars, you don't want to shout at people, so I guess <laughs> you kind of develop a little bit of a softer delivery, and I guess I was kind of blessed or cursed as the case may be, with a soft voice anyway, <laughs> so one day Don just starts calling me calling me Old whisper. And then an old Whisper finally became Whispering Bill, and pretty soon other people heard Don saying it and picked up on it. And You know, in the beginning, it kind of hurt my feelings. I thought, well, they're making fun of me. But mm-hmm. later on, I came to realize that Bill Anderson's a very common name. There's probably one in every phone book in the United States. <laughs> and Whispering Bill's kind of unique. It's yeah. kind of different. And it gave me a little bit of a unique handle without me having to change my name to Conway Twitty or something <laughs> like that.
1: Right, right, right. Uh, Well, in 1963, you experienced yet another massive hit as both an artist and songwriter when "Still" became a number one country hit and crossed over to also become a number eight pop hit. Still, after all this time, still,
0: you're still on my mind.
1: Uh, This was the era when the Nashville sound, with with all the strings and the backup singers, was helping country artists find that pop success as well. Were you intentionally writing songs that were smoother and more geared toward that market, or were you just coming up with ideas independent of what the records might wind up sounding like?
2: A little bit of both. Mm -hmm. Let Let me take you back to those days. You mentioned Mama sang a song. Mama sang a song, even my record, uh, got into the top 100 of the pop charts along with the record by Stan Kenton and the one by Walter Brennan. Right. And Owen Bradley came to me and he said, You know, I think that we may be onto to something here with the, the little thing where maybe you talk a little bit and, and maybe we have a real pretty background group singing with you. He said, I think had Mama sang a song not been so religious in nature. He said, I think it would have gone even higher in the pop charts. He said, I think if you can take that formula, if we can take that formula where maybe you sing a little, you talk a little, we put a big group of of vocal people in the background, but, but it's a love song instead of a religious song. He said, I think we can have even bigger success than we've had up until now. And he was totally right. He was 100% right. He had this remarkable vision and this talent. And so I set about trying to to write the song that would be the one, you know, to bridge that gap. And one day I happened to take Still into his office and he said, I think this is the one. I had written it just a little more up-tempo. I put just a kind of a little feel beat to it. And he said, no, 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 we take it, we slow it down, we make it a ballad, we right. put in a few of these passing chords and things. And he had the vision, and then he had the talent the night we went in the studio to, to put the record together.
1: Yeah, wow. yeah. Well, I think th- that, you know, for for me, a sign of, of the ultimate crossover uh, is that that song was actually recorded by James Brown in 1979? Hmm. You know. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Talk about crossing uh, genres.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think James Brown and I would have been the original odd couple, no <laughs> doubt about that. But uh, you know that that has happened to me a few times in my career. Aretha Franklin recorded one of my songs. I mean, even Stan Kenton. I mean, go back to Stan yeah. Kenton was a jazz artist. Mm. He had a jazz band, right? And right. You look up, and he's doing a, re- a religious recitation. <laughs> called mama sang a song right. so i have been uh, i've been very blessed in that regard over the years to have people like that and the dean martins and the lawrence wilks and these various people you know record songs of mine but uh, none of them quite as unique and and different and and putting his own stamp on it as james brown did oh. on still. <laughs> right, yeah right for
1: sure
0: well in, in terms of ideas are you a writer who usually uh, comes up with a general concept and just starts writing? Or do you typically start with a hook or a title, kind of like you did with with Roger on When Two Worlds Collide?
2: Both ways. I, I write from from the lyrical standpoint more than I do... Uh, just sitting down and coming up with a melody and then trying to put words to it, which some people do. Some people will sit down and and try to get a little riff going, a little Mm. feel going, a little rhythm pattern Mm. and a melody, and then they add the lyrics to it. Well, to me, I'm a lyric writer, and I start with the idea or I start with the concept, and then I let the concept to the lyric idea kind of suggest the melody. Mm. I mean, if I'm writing kind of a melancholy type song, then it suggests a melancholy type melody. If I'm writing a a happy, let's uh, go out and have a wild weekend type song, then then you put that kind of a melody to it. So to me, I start with either that idea or that concept lyrically and
0: try to go from there. And do you write kind of when the mood strikes you, or do you follow like a, a particular discipline of sitting down with certain hours, like approaching the process the way someone would approach a traditional job?
2: When I wrote by myself in the early days when everything was just me. Uh, it was just whenever the the spirit struck. Mm. You know, a lot of times it was three o'clock in the morning right. Yeah, right. <laughs> with all the shades pulled out and the lights turned down low. <laughs> and then when I got into the co-writing thing back in the 90s, I never thought you could make an appointment to sit down with somebody and write a song. I said, you just can't do that. <laughs> but I found out that you can. Yeah. Yeah. You absolutely can do that if you're in the room with the right person. So A little bit of both. I will get ideas and concepts and uh, reasons to want to write songs kind of by myself, uh, totally undisciplined, just like I did when I wrote Alone, and then I'll take those germs of ideas, those little things I come up with, into a co-write session and share them with people, and sometimes we're able to turn them into some pretty good songs.
1: Yeah. Well, in 1964, uh, the great lefty Frizzell had not had a number one record in more than a decade, but he cut your song, Saginaw, Michigan, which took him back to the top of the charts and it earned him a Grammy nomination. I was born in Saginaw, Michigan. I grew up
2: in a house in Saginaw, Bay. My dad was a poor. Hard-working Saginaw fisherman Too many times he came home with too
1: little pay. That has become one of the true classics in the country songbook. Uh, tell us about writing it and, and how Lefty wound up recording it.
2: Well, you got to start by crediting a guy named Don Wayne, whose name is also on there as a writer. It was actually Don Wayne's idea to uh-huh. write a song called Saginaw, Michigan. And I had, as a little boy in Columbia, South Carolina, known some people who were from Saginaw, Michigan. Oddly enough, in yeah. fact, they they shared a duplex apartment with my family and I during the the war years. Huh. And so I was very familiar with the, the town of Saginaw, Michigan. Had actually played there a few times after I had come to Nashville. Yeah. But Don Wayne started writing this story about this uh, poor boy loving this rich girl in Saginaw, Michigan, and her daddy doesn't like the situation. And he got the song started and absolutely had no idea how to finish it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so he came to me one day and sang me the first part of the song. He said, can you, can you finish this? And I'm thinking, golly, man, you know, you've know, you got this guy painted in a corner. I don't know <laughs> if I can finish it or not. Perfect, right. And then he said those magic words. He said, if you can finish the song, uh, I'll give you... Part of it. In other words, I'll put your name on as a <laughs> co-writer, right. and if it makes any money, you can share in right. it. And that <laughs> that's not my attention yeah, That's a good motivator. Good, so I told him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I came home and uh, fooled around with it, and came up with the idea of sending the old man up to Alaska to look for the gold that the guy never really found. And right. I took that back to Don Wayne, and he liked it. And Actually, I was going to record the song. I thought it was a perfect song for me to record, and I actually took it to a record session. Now, here's a great piece of trivia for you. I went into this record session, and I had two songs that were the names of towns and states. Wow. I had three songs I was going to try to record that night. Right. One was Saginaw, Michigan. The other one was called Cincinnati, Ohio. Right. (laughs) I pulled, in all of my brilliance, (laughs) I pulled Cincinnati, Ohio out of the bag and I recorded it. And before I could get back into the studio to cut Saginaw, Michigan, uh, Lefty Frizzell heard the song and he went in and cut it and in retrospect, I'm really glad it turned out that way. Connie Smith went on to have a number one record on Cincinnati, Ohio, so it turned out good for me later on down the
1: line. Well, you know, mentioning Connie Smith, uh, you wrote four of the first five singles that Connie Smith ever released and all of them became top ten hits Uh, and the first one, Once a Day, was a number one career making record for her.
3: Once a day
1: Wow, that's a song about heartbreak, but it's also a very clever song. And, you know, I find it interesting that your stage persona as an artist is this kind of soft-spoken, upbeat, friendly guy who, who kids around with the audience and has a lot of fun. But you also explore some pretty dark themes in some of your writing. Um, and and I'm, I'm interested, do you intentionally try to kind of strike a balance between the weighty and the cute or clever as, as an artist and a writer?
2: It's nothing that I try consciously. Hmm. I think it's just maybe different sides of my personality coming out. I um, I love to I love to make people laugh, right. uh, whether I'm telling them a story on the stage or or writing a line in a song that uh, brings a smile to their face. I, I enjoy doing that. But I'm not. I'm not afraid to, uh, as John Randall would say. I'm not afraid to go dark. I mean, <laughs> right. I wrote the cold hard facts of life and uh, whiskey lullaby with John, <laughs> and right. a few of these drinking double suicide murder type songs. <laughs> right. And um, you know, I'm not. I'm, I'm not scared of that. There are some writers that'll say, "Oh no, you know, I don't want to write that kind of a thing. I, I just want to write, you know, these happy little bouncy songs." Well, you know, life is. Is not always happy and a little bouncy. I mean, life is full of a lot of different shades of bright and dark colors. And yeah. uh, I, I try to paint with a pretty broad. And, sure. and I'll yeah. dip into the, the reds and the greens and the blues and I'll go down and play <laughs> around with the browns and the blacks too. Right,
0: right. Well you know you, you mentioned Cold Hard Facts of Life which Porter Wagoner recorded and it was a major hit in 1967. I mean th- that is one of your darker songs. It's it's about a man who comes home early from a trip and, and he murders his cheating wife and her lover with a knife. Lord, you should have seen their frantic faces
2: They scream and
0: Now, this was over 45 years ago, but I don't think any song with subject matter that raw would, would get recorded today. Do you think mainstream country music has gotten safer over the years in terms of what it's willing to talk about?
2: You know, I, I, I don't know. I can't answer your question. You know, bluegrass music, folk music, has always been pretty dark. Mm. And that's kind of a first cousin to uh, to country music. Yeah. I don't know why I wrote The Cold Hard Facts of Life. I didn't have a thing in the world to base it on. I just had a title mm. and came up with the concept, like you say, of the guy coming home early and he's going to go home and surprise his wife and he gets home and his wife surprises him (laughs) and uh, (laughs) and then it's who taught who the cold hard facts of life at the end of the song so I, I don't know if country music it has been a long time I guess that somebody's done that type of a song in country music but just as you stand here and say it'll never happen again I guarantee you somebody will come out (laughs) with one.
1: (laughs) Maybe it'll be you. (laughs) I hope so. Well in the late 1960s and and 70s you were a a very busy guy you were releasing major singles uh, as an artist including self-penned number one hits such as I Get the Fever and uh, My Life, Throw It Away If I Want To. Uh, You were also writing big hits for Jan Howard, Connie Smith, Gene Shepard, uh, Uh, and Cal Smith, who had a number one record with your song, Lord Knows I'm Drinking. Um, That song addresses religious hypocrisy in a very direct way. Was there any particular inspiration for that song?
2: Oh, yeah, Uh, quite uh, an inspiration for this song. Although I made the story up once I started writing the song, the way that the title came to me was my wife and I were having dinner at a little restaurant uh, outside of Nashville, Directly across the street from the church that we attended, right. and we are in this little restaurant, and uh, they had just relaxed the uh, liquor laws in Nashville, where you could get liquor by the drink in restaurants for years. Mm. When I first came to Nashville, you know that that was, you know, you had to bring your own bottle, this kind uh. of thing. But my wife and I were having dinner in this little restaurant, and we ordered a glass of wine to right. go with our dinner, and we're having a, a very nice quiet conversation, waiting on our meal to come, and we look up, and into the little restaurant comes the preacher from our church across the street, and a couple of the the high-ranking officials in the in the church, they right. come in, and I'm sitting there with this glass of wine, and uh, my uh, my Mev- Methodist guilt complex comes down, I said, oh my goodness, we need to hide the wine, <laughs> so they can't see that we're drinking, and the menu was kind of sitting on the table, so I slid my glass of wine over kind of behind the menu where nobody could see it, right. and my wife didn't do that. She just left hers right out in the open. I said, aren't you going to put that back there? She said... I'm not hiding anything. She said, the Lord knows I'm drinking. <laughs>
3: That's
2: awesome. And boy, when she said that, <laughs> wow. yeah. forget the rest of the yeah. night. I mean, my songwriter's antenna started going whoop, whoop, whoop. <laughs> <laughs> right, of course. <laughs>
1: Just write it on the tablecloth.
0: I knew there was
2: a song idea there somewhere. Yeah.
1: yeah,
0: for sure. Well, in 1978, you had a number four hit with I Can't Wait Any Longer, which is credited for marrying country music with disco now disco was they were since
2: divorced (laughs) I can't wait any longer baby I mean I can't wait
0: any longer I gotta have you I gotta know how it is to touch you to
2: hold you to feel you our lives have touched Touched, and I can't wait any longer for our bodies to touch, our souls to touch.
3: I can't wait any
0: Disco was, of course, very popular at the time, but it, it eventually fell out of favor. What are your thoughts on that song today?
2: They are mixed. Hmm. Um, number one, when the disco beat came along, I liked it. I, I was one of the few people in the music business, I thought it was. I thought it was exciting, I thought it was, uh, it, it was compulsating, it, uh, I liked it. Mm. And I went to Buddy Killen one day and I said, why couldn't you take a country song, a country lyric and idea, and even, even a country melody, and put a disco-type beat to it? Mm. I said, why couldn't you do that? He said, I don't know any reason you couldn't do it. <laughs> I said, I want to do it. Mm. I want to do that. And then I got to listening to a good bit of disco music, and and I got, I got to listening to the, the guy, guy named Barry White. I don't know if you're familiar oh, yeah. with Barry White. Most sure. people are. And uh, Barry White was doing these kind of things like I was doing, where I was singing a little bit and talking mm-hmm. a little bit. But he was doing it over these very sexy rhythm beats, and he was, you know, pretty straight on in his lyrics with things that he was talking about. You know, yeah. love songs and things. And I'm thinking, why couldn't I do kind of a country music, Barry White type of thing. Right. So uh, I wrote I Can't Wait Any Longer, and I took it up to Buddy, and, and he really liked it. He said, let's do it. So we went to the studio and recorded it, and it was a love-hate record from the very beginning. People either loved it, they either thought it was the best thing I had ever recorded, or they absolutely couldn't stand wow. it. <laughs> and uh, oh, <laughs> <Very polarizing. laughs> You should have seen some of my mail. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So uh, I'll say this. about I, rec- I did it on stage for years. I only did it a very few times on the Grand Ole Opry because it was not the kind of song that the Opry audience wanted to hear. <laughs> and uh, I probably still wouldn't. And I haven't done it on stage in quite a while, but I'm not ashamed of the record. And I'm, I'm glad we did it because we did something unique. Billboard gave out an award for the, something like the most, uh, I forget exactly what they called it, but it was, it was called a Breakthrough Award. Mm. That's what it was for somebody that, you know, did something different that year, and they gave me their award that year for doing that, Yeah, for, uh, I guess, for being stupid enough to try and mix, (laughs) to marry country music to disco. (laughs) That's funny.
1: Well, in 1979, Conway Twitty had a number one hit with uh, I May Never Get to Heaven, and that was followed by Jerry Lee Lewis's version of When Two Worlds Collide, which went to number 11 the following year. But after that, you did not break into the country top 40 as a writer for the rest of the 1980s. Did you intentionally set writing aside in that era?
2: Well, yes and no. Um, In in the early 1980s, after I'd been writing and doing pretty good with songs for almost 25 years, I noticed the music was starting to change. I noticed it was getting a more pop flavor. The melodies were becoming more intricate, more complicated. The music was not speaking to me the way that it had for 25 years prior to that. And I had gotten involved in several other things. I had been going out to California a lot in the late 70s and appearing on television shows, particularly game shows. I had become kind of a regular on the game show circuit. I was doing shows like Match Game and Password and Hollywood Squares and these kinds of shows on a kind of a regular basis. And I became very intrigued with it and even got offered my own game show to co-host on ABC television daytime game show. In uh, nineteen seventy-eight, yeah, and so I, I, as the music began to change and I began to feel a little more disenfranchised by it, this television thing was opening up for me, and so I really kind of, kind of put my eggs in a different basket for a while, mm. and and I kind of went after the, the television thing, the game show thing. I hosted a show called The Better Sex with Sarah Purcell on ABC for uh, a little over a year, and then when that show got canceled by the network. Uh, I auditioned for another show at NBC, and I got it, and it was going to go on the air, and they had some kind of problems with the the software, the computer stuff that was very new in those days and couldn't technically make the show work, and so it never actually got on the air. Mm. But I came back to Nashville, and they had signed on a thing here called the Nashville Network. Next thing I knew, I was on the Nashville Network hosting game shows, country music trivia game shows, and having a ball doing that. I got involved with a restaurant chain called Folks Restaurants and became the spokesman for them and traveled all over the country you know, selling fried chicken and pork chops mm-hmm. and biscuits. And <laughs> yeah. uh, and then on top of all of that, uh, I was married at the time. My wife was in a very serious automobile accident. We had a cool. six-year-old son, and I had to kind of rein in a lot of my, my priorities in life to help raise him and, mm-hmm. and get her through the recovery process, which yeah. was long and slow and painful. So a long answer to a short question. I just kind of got away from songwriting. That was just not high on my priority list for sure. about 10 years.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, one of your most enduring songs that we haven't mentioned yet is Tip of My Fingers, which was a top 10 hit for you in 1960, uh, top 10 for Roy Clark in 1963, top 10 for Eddie Arnold in 1966. Uh, Gene Shepard uh, had a hit with it in 1975. Uh, and then in 1992, uh, Steve Warner had a big hit with it once again.
3: Somebody-
1: Um, And not long after, you came roaring back with a vengeance as a hit songwriter. Did Steve Warner's revival of Tip of My Fingers kind of inspire you to get back in the game in that regard?
2: Totally. Mm. Now, you're calling it the tip of my fingers, which is the way it was written. (laughs) (laughs) The way Eddie Arnold and I recorded it. Roy Clark and Gene Shepard and Steve Warner had more fingers than me and Eddie Arnold. (laughs) 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 So they sang it as the tips of my fingers, which I have... I have conceded it's probably the uh, grammatically correct way to put it <laughs> in the way that I do it today. Yeah, when that song hit in 1992, now you got to figure here, I had been away from writing pretty much for about 10 years and hadn't been pushing my songs or anything. I'm thinking the music has changed and I can't relate to it. And All of a sudden, one morning, I wake up, tips of my fingers, a song that I wrote 32 years earlier mm. was the number one song in the country. Yeah. And I'm looking in the mirror and I'm saying, hey, dummy, you know, (laughs) if that song can be a number one, you can write that song again. You can write songs like that. If that's what they want, why don't you go write some more songs? Well, when I got my first royalty check for Steve's record, uh, I I was kind of like Alan Jackson, uh, like Tom T. Hall was when Alan Jackson recorded one of his songs. He said, you know, back uh, when I was writing hit songs in the 60s, if if you wrote a hit song, you could buy a new car. Right. He said, now you write a hit song, you can buy the whole dealership. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> <Right. Yeah. laughs> so I realized that the, the numbers had changed a little bit when Steve uh, had the big hit with Tips of My Fingers. But it wasn't just that. I've never been in this business for the money. Mm-hmm. That's just kind of been the, uh, the cherry on top of the sundae. Mm-hmm. I was in the business and got in the business because I loved the music. I missed it. I realized mm-hmm. when Tips of My Fingers became a hit I realized how much I had missed it how much I had missed songwriting and that's when I began to study a way to try to get back in and write some more songs
0: yeah well continuing then in 1995 you and Vince Gill collaborated on which bridge to cross which bridge to burn which Vince took to number four on the Billboard
3: chart Lessons I've learned I'm standing at the crossroads With just one concern Which bridge to cross and Which bridge to burn
0: When I hear that song, it's written so masterfully. It's, it's really hard to believe that you'd been away from writing for so long. Did you fall right back into the groove, or, or did it take you a little bit of time to knock some of the rust off?
2: Well, Vince was the first person that uh, that I went to, really, when I when I decided, okay, I'm going to take the plunge. I'm going to see if I can actually co-write songs, making an appointment with somebody going in at 10 o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. and we write songs until 4 in the afternoon or whatever. So Vince was so great. He was right at the peak of his career mm-hmm. then, and he was so gracious to me and opened the door, whereas I think a lot of people in Nashville would have looked at me and said, oh, Bill Anderson's a dinosaur. You know, he was all right back in the 60s and 70s, but, you know, this is the 90s. But Vince let me come into his circle. He took me into his his room, and the second day that we got together to write, we wrote which bridge to cross, which bridge to burn. And when he recorded it and it became a, a success and all, it opened up all the new doors on Music Row, all the new young writers, the new publishers, the new record companies that I didn't know these people. And I didn't have to go knocking on their door once this song came out by Vince Gill. They came knocking on my door. And we got to sit down with so many great writers and and really get back into the whole thing again. And yeah, I guess there might have been a little period of shaking off the rust, but uh, it didn't last long. It's kind of like riding a bicycle, I (laughs) guess.
1: Right, right. Well, your your second act has been full of, of highlights, uh, including Mark Will's number one, Wish You Were Here in 1999, uh, Kenny Chesney's top ten hit, uh, A Lot of Things Different in 2002. One of my absolute favorite Bill Anderson songs from your entire career, however, is Brad Paisley and Alison Krauss's recording of Whiskey Lullaby, which was uh, a big hit for them. He put that bottle to
2: is short, but this time it was bigger than the strength he had to get up
1: off his knees. We found him with his face down in the pillow,
3: with a note that said, I love her till I die.
0: And when we buried.
1: To hear a song that was that depressing (laughs) and also that amazing uh, become this major radio hit absolutely restored my faith in country music in the mid-2000s. Where'd that idea come from? Tell us kind of the background of that song.
2: I have to give John Randall an awful lot of credit for that because um, John and I had a writing appointment scheduled for a particular day. I don't know what day it was, but a couple of weeks before we were going to sit down and try to write. I ran into John over in the parking lot at Tree Publishing Company, and he was looking pretty dejected. And I said, what's the matter, man, you okay? And he said, well, it hasn't been my best day, and I said, uh, what do you mean? And he looked at his watch, and he said, it's 2.30 in the afternoon, it's only 2.30, and already today I have lost my publishing deal, I've lost my record deal, and my wife is going to divorce me.
3: Good mm-hmm. Lord, Jesus.
2: I was wow. You know, it's at two thirty, man. You still got three or four more hours to go. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to happen. So John, uh, John took those those feelings of being very, very depressed, and he kind of he went off and uh, did exactly what we said in the song. He put the bottle to his head and pulled the trigger. He went off and got pretty drunk for a couple of weeks. Yeah. uh, and just kind of you know tried to to fight his his depression with alcohol, yeah, when he came back in the day, we were going to write a song together. uh he began telling me a little bit about what he had been through, and uh you know we kind of began to sort it out, and then we started talking about a song, writing a song. He said, "If you got an idea, this is usually what you do when you go in to co-write with somebody. Do you have an idea? No, well, I've thought of this, and you know you kind of banter it back and forth. I said, I've been wanting to write a song called Midnight Cigarette. Hmm. I said, I I see it. We do the image thing of of a love that faded out kind of like a cigarette would at midnight, sitting in an ashtray all by itself in a dark room. And he loved the idea. He said, I love that. And we started playing around with the midnight cigarette idea. And then he said, let me tell you something a friend of mine said to me. He said, I was kind of coming out of this funk that I'd been in. And he said, I had car- crashed at this friend of mine's house and just kind of slept on his sofa for a couple of weeks, and I hadn't been a very nice guy to be around. And he said, when I decided to straighten up and fly right, he said, I went to my friend, and I apologized. I said, man, I'm sorry for all the things that I've done and the way I've been for the last couple of weeks, and I appreciate all your help and understanding. And his friend said to him, that's all right, John. I've put the bottle to my head and pulled the trigger a few times. Mm-hmm. So when he said this line to me there in the writing room, I forgot all about the midnight cigarette.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. I said, man, we need to write that bottle to the head and pull the trigger. As we wrote it, as the song came together, the line, the opening line of the song was, she put him out like the burning end of a midnight cigarette. Wow. So we got that part into yeah. the yeah. song, right. and then we began to get the part about the bottle to his head and pull the trigger. And I don't know exactly where the idea to make it a whiskey lullaby Came in. I would say it was John's idea uh, that he just he just felt like that was the right way to go. And then then I wrote the great part of the lyric. I wrote la 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 <laughs> la 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 la. <laughs> right, right. That's what made it. Yep. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm only being facetious. I, I don't think I even wrote that. But, uh, but but that's how the song got. And John had no faith in the song at all as a commercial song when we wrote it. I had to beg him to even do a demo on it i said we've got to do a demo john i said this is really this song could could really be a left field kind of a hit yeah and and he didn't believe it but i talked him in twisted his arm i said we've got to go in and do a demo on it so we did and oddly enough you'll never believe unless you've heard it somewhere who the first act was to put that song on hold and said they were going to record it who's that the Dixie Chicks.
1: Huh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. was interesting.
2: So we thought we had a record by the Dixie Chicks, and of course they were, you know, odd as could be in Huge. those days. And yeah. we were thrilled, and then of course they kind of imploded and their career went elsewhere. And, and Brad Paisley had heard the song, Meantime, and said if it ever became available, he'd like to record it. It was his idea to put Alison Krauss on it. We did not write the song as a duet. Hmm. Brad turned it into a duet with yeah. Alison. And the rest is
0: history. And that was a good decision, huh? Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, having written and pitched in in so many decades and seeing the, the climate probably change in so many ways around you, do you think it's harder now for Nashville songwriters to get their material cut uh, than it was, say, in 1965?
2: Yeah, I think so, probably. There are more outlets, there are many more artists, there are more record companies, there's more opportunities, but there's also more doors that are closed. And mm. by that I mean... Record companies have their own in-house writers, their own in-house publishing companies. They're not as open to outside songs as they might have been at one point in time. And, of course, we've been going through this thing for the last few years of the the bro country kind of thing, where everything's about a pickup truck Mm -hmm. and drinking beer and taking a girl and going to the lake. And, you know, not all of us want to write those kinds of songs. (laughs) And uh, so I think it's been a little bit harder to get substantive songs substance to whatever the word <laughs> songs that, that really say something i've been a, it's been a little bit harder to get those recorded yeah. but i think it's going to come back around everything is cyclical and i think uh, i think the, uh, the the traditional themes in all of country music are, are going to come back
1: yeah well, one of those great country songs with traditional themes uh, that you had success with of course was george strait's uh, record of give it away which you co-wrote with buddy cannon and Jamie johnson
3: Just give it away
1: That was George's 41st number one single, which allowed him to beat Conway Twitty's previous record of 40 number ones, making uh, George Strait the country artist with more number one records than anyone. Um, And it was the song of the year at both the CMA and the ACM awards. Um, Many writers struggle to remain relevant after a decade or so, but here you were after more than 50 years in the business, not only staying relevant, but being at the absolute top. And that's a feeling that not many people can say they've had. When you got back into writing in the 1990s, did you have any idea that it would turn out as successfully as it did?
2: No, <laughs> no, I, I can't lie and say that. I, I hoped that it would, you sure. know, you always hope that you're going to be successful. It's something that you put your your time and effort and energy into but i had no idea it was going to be the way that it was i had no idea we'd win two out of three cma song of the year awards with whiskey lullaby in 2005 and give it away in 2007 i mean if i'd even dared to think that i I would have uh, probably gone and committed myself to a psychiatrist somewhere you know because you just don't uh, you don't dream that big but those things happen yeah. you know, that's yeah, pretty special
0: yeah. well in 2014 Willie Nelson recorded a song called The Songwriters that you co-wrote with Gordy Sampson which describes what you love about your profession we're
1: heroes we're schemers we're drunks and we're dreamers we're lovers and sometimes we're fighters
2: we're students we're teachers we're the devil we're preachers
1: we're true love but mostly one-nighters
0: we're the song and it, it sounds like you still have a real passion for the job after all these years. And you've certainly continued to have success with hit singles like Joe Nichols' I'll Wait For You and Sugar Land's Joey. And just recently you wrote the song Country for Mo Pitney. And, and that song is significant because that makes you the only writer to have had a top 40 single in seven consecutive decades. I mean, that's amazing. So so the question is, do you ever even see a need to retire?
2: <laughs> Other than being tired and worn out, <laughs> uh, I don't think I could, I could retire if I wanted to. I mean, I might slow down in certain areas, and I and I have. I don't try to do as much now as I did years ago, but um, to just hang it up and totally quit and and get on my horse and ride off in the sunset? No, I don't think so. Yeah, hmm. I just don't think that's in my my DNA. If I was on that horse riding off into the sunset, I'd come up with an idea for a song. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be looking for a pen on a piece of paper to write it down.
1: <laughs> And it'd probably be a hit. Um, Bill, we thank you so much for being here today and spending some time with us. We've really enjoyed this conversation.
2: Thank you, man. I appreciate you asking me, too. And uh, good talking to both of you.
0: Thank you for listening, and we look forward to getting together with you again for the next episode of Songcraft. We're heroes, we're schemers, we're drunks, we're dreamers,
2: we're lovers, and sometimes we're fighters. We're students, we're teachers, we're the devil, we're preachers, we're true love, but mostly one-nighters. We're the song.